So we're starting a new series and a new book um, this morning. So just to kind of explain a little bit uh, where we're going. The new series is called uh, uh, Samuel, uh, the, the leader that God wanted. And, uh, and then this is going to last for about seven weeks until this, until this summer. And then after we go through the summer months, we're going to start another series called uh, Saul, the leader God, the leader the people wanted. And then uh, after Saul, depending on how long that will take, uh, we'll move into King David. And uh, who knows how long that's going to take. That would be the leader after God's own heart. And uh, so we'll open up the book of uh, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and then go into the book of Psalms. And, and uh, we'll have a great time um, in that. But what we're looking at is um, Samuel is kind of a, a start of a new trajectory for Israel. Remember what we went through starting in September. We went through the book of Judges. It was a very dark time for Israel. Very, very um, dark time. Because they rejected God. When they rejected God, the leadership just was not there. And as a result of leadership not being there and God working through individuals, it was, um, uh, people struggled. Uh, entire country struggled. The entire nation of Israel went through a horrific time. And then, and then our next series was, was Ruth, we went through the book of Ruth. Well, Ruth is not after Judges. Ruth is in the center uh, of Judges. So you have the book of Judges and then you have Ruth, which is in the center of Judges. And then you have 1 Samuel. And the first Samuel is a change in leadership. There's a change in leadership. Now, if there's a change in leadership of where God is working through individuals, you're going to see a change in the nation. You're going to see a change in people. You're going to see an ultimate change after first Samuel is over as King David uh, takes charge. And, and here is David allowing God to work through him to accomplish his purpose and to accomplish uh, his mission. So when we look at the Bible, we need to always remember that the Bible is not about Samuel. The Bible is not about David. Uh, what's the Bible about? The Bible is about God. And God proclaiming who he is to us. So when we look at these different stories, we want to look at it from God's perspective of how God is working and who he's working with. And who he's working and, and how he's is moving his power into individuals. And so if 60% of the Bible is narrative, meaning that a storyteller, we can see these characters... Um, inside the story. And as we see these characters inside the story, we see God's activity inside these characters and we see what he's doing. Now, if he's doing this for Samuel, who is a great leader, we can ask the question, why? What is, what is God moving towards in regards to Samuel? What is God like in Samuel? What is God accomplishing through Samuel? And why can God accomplish it through Samuel? And then all of a sudden we can learn about God. And as a result of learning about God, guess what we get to do? We get to apply the same principles in the word um, that are applied in the stories of these, of these characters. So this morning we're not even going to talk about Samuel. Uh, Samuel's not even born yet. We're going to talk about Samuel's mom on Mother's Day, uh, which would be Hannah. Now, if you look at the Bible, there's always a forerunner that seems like sets the stage before somebody takes the scene and takes off. And so if there's a trajectory that's going to come good or even a trajectory that's going to come bad, right at the beginning of the story, there's a person that is like a forerunner, like John the Baptist was a forerunner for Jesus Christ. He has, owns very little chapters in the Bible, very few verses in the Bible, but he sets the stage for the coming of the Messiah as a forerunner. So here comes Samuel that's going to step onto the scene. A powerful, powerful person. But if you look at his mom's life, which is Hannah, you can look through that first chapter. And she is going to set the stage on who God uses. 
and the concept of this is who God works through. This is who God is looking for. This is what God is looking for. This is where God migrates to. This is where God sends his power. This is where God sends his spirit. We can learn about God through the first chapter before the whole trajectory of Israel changes for the good from the bad. So we've set this sermon up in the concept of God uses who? We'll walk through the story of Hannah. And as we walk through the story of Santa, we will see who God uses. Number one, God uses those who are empty. First Samuel 1 starts this way. There was a certain man of Ramathon Sophim in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. And the son of Jeroham, and the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one of them was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. Peninnah had children, and Hannah had no children. Hannah is the character that we're looking at, and she's empty. Empty in two different ways. Number one is she's in a polygamous relationship. In other words, if you look at polygamy, you'll say, well, doesn't the Bible condone polygamy? Yes, the answer is yes. The Bible condones polygamy, but through the Old Testament, it seems like Israel accepted polygamy. But polygamy brings no health. It brings no love. It brings no enrichment. It brings shattered emotions. It brings death. And we can see that in Hannah, in the polygamous relationship. And you look at this passage, you have Hannah and Peninnah. Hannah was probably the one that was the first to be married. In other words, married Elkanah. And after she married, she could not have any babies. As a result of not having any babies, what did he do? He married another lady that could have babies. So the next thing that brings her empty is she is barren. She cannot have, cannot have children. But Penina can. What I mean by God uses those who are empty. You know, when you look at the concept of coming to church, you know, people visit church, and the reason why is because they are in need of something. It's because there is a lack in their lives. And, and they believe that spirituality is something, that God has something for them. So they show up to church empty. And when, and when we show up to church empty, what's, why do we do that? It's because we want to be filled by God. We want him to answer our prayer, whether it's regard to our marriage. We want him to answer our prayer in regards to our job that we have lost. We want him to answer our prayer in regards to the hardship that has taken place. But what happens when God answers the prayer? Often he fills us up by answering the prayer, and then we don't need church anymore because we got, we got the answer. When you look at this concept of empty being full, God doesn't want to fill you up by answering a prayer. God wants to fill you up by himself. He wants you completely and entirely full by himself. So when you are in need and when you're empty, you're very vulnerable to what? Be filled up by him for what purpose? The purpose of displaying this is who God is to the entire world that's around you. If God has ever answered your prayer, he's only answered your prayer for one reason. To show that he exists. To show that he is powerful. To show you that he's a king of kings, lord of lords, and that he is concerned with you. And when we see that, what are we supposed to do to it? We're supposed to respond to him. Not it. Not the answer to the prayer, but to him and then shout the name of Christ for the rest of her life. God answered my prayer. 
I've been transformed. I was empty, but now I'm full. So here is Hannah, completely and entirely empty. If she is full of herself, then God couldn't do anything. I mean, God's, God's out of the picture. We, we know people that are full of themselves. Like, God, God can't work through somebody that's full of themselves because people don't save. God saves. Somebody's got to be empty so God can fill them up with God, and then the world sees them. So she's empty. Prime candidate to be used. That puts us all in the category because we've all been empty at one time or another or are empty right now. What does that mean? You're a prime candidate to be used. Number two, God uses the one that does not bow to a culture. I want to read the passage and then we're going to talk a little bit about culture. Passages in verse three. Now this man, Elkinah, used to go up year by year from the city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkinah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb, and her rival used to, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. Now Kina, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. I talk about culture. Culture is something that sucks you into its meaning system. What we want is we want purpose in life. What we want is we want, we want meaning. What we want is we want an identity. And so we start to live in a culture. When we start living in the culture, the culture starts to identify you as a person. The culture starts to give you purpose. The culture starts to give you meaning. The culture starts to give you worth and value. And the culture is internal that pushes you towards those pieces. In the United States, we live in an individualistic culture. Individualistic culture. In other words, what is it? It's a, a culture on what I can uh, accomplish. So what do you do? You build your life on what you can accomplish. It's an individualistic culture. If I can accomplish this, then this is who I am. If I can accomplish this, this is my purpose. If I can be the CEO of this company, I've now find my meaning in my life. And now I have my identity because I'm the CEO of the company. If I accomplish this, then I have a whole granted a lot of money. And that's, that's who I am now. And the culture is internally pushing you towards what you can accomplish. Culture also pushes you towards what you can complete. It's an individualistic culture. In other words, if you can complete something great, then that's who you are. You are educated you know it's like you went all the way through school you are a former nfl player you are a former nba all of a sudden we're labeling people on what they completed and internally what do we want to do we want to complete something so we can have purpose we want to complete something so we can have meaning we want to complete something so we can have an identity it's an individualistic culture that is is driving us so all of us are pushing towards a direction because we, we want to be uh, complete, so we start to complete something. 
we might kind of move to another culture. As our culture, an individualistic culture, says, this is what I want to be. <laughs> In other words, I could be anything I want to be. And I'm going to make a statement of, of who I am. And your identity is based on, you know, who you are. In fact, when you look at the whole uh, sexual identity thing, um, we're all hungry for an identity. And there's a movement, a horrific movement that's going on right now. Say, this is your identity. And you find your identity and your sexuality. And culture is pushing that. Culture is driving that inside an individualistic culture because we exist for ourselves. And as long as we are doing it, then, then we're good. We have meaning. We have purpose. We're something. In the individualistic culture, we also um, are build our life around the way that we looked. If I look this way, then I'm everything. If I look this way, I fit in this category. If I don't look this way, I don't fit in this category. Individualistic culture is internally driving us. It's sending us. It's, it's making us. It's, it's, it's attacking us. And every person lives in a culture that is doing that. But individualistic culture is not the only culture that is out there. There's also a culture called a collectivistic culture. And a collectivistic culture is not an individualistic culture, and it looks different than America. Um, a collectivistic culture is, is a culture that you'd find all the way through the, the Word of God. It's not based on what you can accomplish. It's, it's more based on who you socialize with. It's more based on your society. It's more based on on who you're, you're from. This is who I am. Haven't you seen my heritage? This is who I am. Haven't you seen my parents and the status and the, the glory that my parents were? This is who I, I identify with. Family is very, very um, important in regards to this cultivistic culture. In fact, family um, is everything. And if you uh, went to apply for the job, they would say, all right, show me your resume. And do you know what you'd show them? You'd show them the genealogy of your heritage. You put it on the table and says, this is my resume. Yeah. Oh, you related to him and him or her. Oh, oh my goodness. You got a good resume. You're hired. Now, individualistic culture is different than that. You put down, well, this is what I accomplished. This is what I did, but not the cultivistic culture. No, you are who you are related to. We get really bored reading through the Bible because we have all these genealogies in, in first, Chron- second Chron- first Chronicles and, and the genealogies through the book of Genesis and it's, it's name after name after name after name after name. We're like, this is boring. And the reason why is because we live in an individualistic culture. But if you look at these genealogies in a cultivistic culture, you go, oh my goodness, this person is really, really important. That's why in Matthew chapter 1, people of the cultivistic culture understand the severity of what is written in Matthew chapter 1, and we don't understand. What is Matthew chapter 1? It's the genealogy of Jesus. Now, if you're going to have a king or a god that is going to change the trajectory, he better have a good resume. And what do they give him? They give him the genealogies. And do you know what it is? You're going to find a whole bunch of sinners. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to find low-class uh, you can get four prostitutes. I mean, if you look at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, it's like, oh my goodness, this guy isn't worth anything. But who he is, he's a friend of sinners. And it opens up the mind in a cultivistic culture because that's where the Bible is working towards. So let's put this passage in perspective because they live in a cultivistic, um, um, a collectivistic culture. So family 
is everything. And if you don't have family, then you have nothing. If you don't have family and children, you don't have a purpose. If you don't have family and children, you don't have a name because your name doesn't live on. When you die, you die in the dirt and nothing gets passed on. If you don't have family, you don't have status. You are judged on whether you have a family or not inside of this culture. And in this passage, we see Peninnah judging Hannah to the extreme. We see it in, in, verse, uh, in verse 4. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and to all her daughters. Now they're going to Shiloh to sacrifice, and Peninnah, what she would do is everybody would get a sacrifice. So it means if she had ten children, she would give all the kids the sacrifice. So they would come in a pack of sacrifice. Here's Hannah, she's got nothing. It's just her. So every time they came to Shiloh, this confronted Hannah. I am out of society. I don't fit in. I don't fit here. It does not work. I'm low class. I am poor. I have nothing inside this culture. And Peninnah would consistently tell Hannah about it. You see that in verse 6. And her rival, which is Peninnah, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. Her rival, Peninnah, used to provoke Hannah grievously to irritate. Irritates to mean to roar with thunder. I mean, I tear into Hannah for the purpose of telling her what she is. Nothing to the point of irritating her. Why? It says, because the Lord had, cho- had closed her womb. Since you don't have a baby, you're absolutely nothing. But it didn't start one time. As you see, go through the passages numerous times. So it went on year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. She's not only getting an attack from her other wife, I don't even know what you, what you call it, Elkanah's other wife, or sister-in-law, I don't know how that works in polygamy, but she's getting attacked by the culture, and Peninnah is letting her know. You are nothing as a result of this. Elkanah steps in, and he tries to comfort Hannah. Tries to give her a, a different culture. Okay, you don't fit into culture, Hannah, but let me give you a little bit of different taste. Let me give you something else to live for. Let me give you something else that gives you meaning. Let me give you something else that gives you purpose. Let me give you something else that gives you an identity. What does Elkanah say? Verse 5, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. What does that mean? It means I know you can't have babies, but don't worry. Yeah, got me. <laughs> Let's just for the rest of our lives just kind of make a love affair. In other words, put your identity on me. Put your purpose on me. Yes, you don't have family. I know the culture drives our family, but don't let that culture drive you. Let me drive you. It's even said at the bottom of verse 8. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why should your heart be sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Don't build your life on your family. Build your life on my love. Build your life on me. Everybody's got to have an identity. Everybody's got to have a purpose. I am your purpose. So Medina is representing a sociological hope that is there. 
You have nothing because you're not socially accepted. Achinas is giving her a, a psychological hope. You know, if you, if you have me, you can have everything. They're trying to define her. And Hannah wants to be defined because every single one of us want to be defined. So where is Hannah going to go? She said the words, I don't want anything to do with your culture. Yes, this culture is telling me to be somebody, but I don't want anything to do with the culture that's trying to drive me and try to send me. And we see her by saying this in verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. means I left. I departed from the area. Where did she go? Number three, God uses the one who bows down to him. Didn't bow to a culture that was going to give her an identity. Didn't bow to a culture that was going to give her a purpose, going to give her a meaning, going to give her something that internally she wants. He bowed down to God instead. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting at the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. I am going to have a purpose. I am going to have meaning. I am going to have an identity, but it's not based here. It's going to be based here. But then what does she pray when she comes down to pray? What she prays is completely and entirely fascinating and carries so much power. Number four, God uses the one who puts him first. When she prays, she's making a statement that God, you're first, I'm not. What I want is now going to be yours. Watch this, this is in verse 11. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I'll give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall touch his head. Now when we look at this, we think uh, it's kind of like a bargain. Hey God, let me make a deal. If you give me a son, I'll give him back. You know, that's the way we kind of read that. It looks, it looks like a bargain. It's actually not a bargain if you look at it closely. What Hannah is doing is she's trying to get the desire out of her to build her life on a family. To get the desire out of her to build her life on a, a son. To get the desire out of her to build her life on what the culture wants her to be. Instead, build your life on God. She changed her mind. She changed her definition. I once wanted a son for me, but now I want a son for you, God. I once wanted a son for my sake, but now I want a son for your sake. And if a son comes my way, that son will then be handed to you. Because whatever is my desires will then be at your footsteps. Powerful, powerful prayer. In a sense that I want you first, God. And I want you to be pleased with me, God. I want to know what you think about me, God. Not what the culture thinks. Not what everybody else wants. Not what everything else is driving. I want to know what you think. Number five, God uses the one who prays with her whole heart. So she sends out from the bottom of her heart. We see an emotional prayer, probably one of the most emotional prayers in the Bible. It says this in verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, 
Only her lips were moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Hannah answered, No, my lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have not drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxieties and vexations. Troubled spirit, I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. I have been speaking out of my great anxieties and vexations. She's pouring her innards out to God. Not just asking, but bringing all of her motives, all of her emotions, all of her entire heart and putting it on a platter. For you and for you alone, God. He's probably thinking about Exodus 3 when God says, Surely I see the affliction of my people. He's thinking, but God, do you see the affliction of me? Probably thinking of Exodus 4, which says, I have seen the affliction. Or Deuteronomy 4, when the Lord saw your affliction. As I am, am in this world, do you see my affliction? Give it to me, God, and it will be granted back to you. Taking place is God is working on her heart. And as a result of God working on her heart, something great is going to be done. What is this thing that is great? Verse 17. Then Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning, and they worshipped before the Lord when they went back to their houses at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his, his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. He had a baby, and the boy's name was Samuel. He gave a picture of the way that God responds to individuals and who you are to be responded to. And when Samuel was born, what we're going to see is they see a trajectory in the nation of Israel as a result of the one man carrying these same characteristics. But there's something that's even going on deeper that's even behind the scenes. And as a result of this thing that's behind the scenes, it's, it's found in the next chapter. Because this is the story. But after the story when, Eli, or when Samuel was born, um, Hannah sings a song. And when you get a song that comes out, you really get the heart of the person. And this is what you can get out of the heart of a song. Number six, God uses the humble, broken, poor, weak unwanted outcasts that are dependent on him. The whole story about Hannah is that she is empty and God filled her up. She is empty and God filled her up. But if she is full, what could God have done? If she is full of herself, what, I mean, is there anything that God could get done with Peninnah? I mean, there's nothing God could have done with Peninnah. Why? The reason, because Peninnah had everything. As a result of having everything, she had nothing really to offer the world except the things that she had. But as a result of Hannah being empty, God fills her up, and then she puts a, a statement on paper that, was list, that has lasted 3,000 years. And here's her song, verse 3. 
Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. The Lord brings down Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and the Lord makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit the seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he, set, he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might nor might man shall prevail. If you look at this passage, there's seven contrasts. You have the weak will be mighty, you have the hungry will be full, you have the barren will be fertile, you have the dead that will be alive, you have sick that will be well, you have the poor that will be rich, and you have the humble that will be exalted. What is that? That's God saving the needy. That's God saving the hungry. That's God saving the poor. And when God does it, the whole world does what? Sees God. Now there's a trajectory of leadership that is happening here. Because all the way through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges, we see God in a light of Mount Sinai where he carries so much power, so much glory, so much strength that Moses can't even look at him. If he looks at him, what? He would die. I mean, that's what, according to Exodus, he would die. He wouldn't make it because he carries that power. We see the power and the strength in armies that come in Joshua. We see the power and the strength of armies that even come when God works in Judges. But here we see a very strong description. I'm not looking for the strong. I'm looking for the weak so I can be strong. I'm not looking for the full. I'm looking for the hungry so I can fill up. I'm not looking for the fertile. I'm looking for the barren so I can fill that person's cup up and use this person as a great person. I'm not looking for the ones who are alive. I'm looking for the ones who are dead. And one day I will raise these people from the dead and they'll be able to see my power. I'm not looking for the sick. Uh, I'm not looking for the well. I'm actually looking for the sick so people can see my power work through them. I'm not looking for the rich because the rich just can't offer me what the poor can offer me. Because if a poor person comes, what happens is that I can fill that person up with the greatest wealth and they will appreciate it, know it, and love it. I'm not looking for the exalted. I'm looking for the humble. Remember what the book of Ruth did? Pointed us right to Jesus. What is Hannah doing right now? <laughs> She's pointing right to our Savior of who he is. Not only setting um, the, the course for Samuel, but even setting the course for the Messiah. You know what's so cool is there's another song that's written in the Bible and it's found in the New Testament. This song is sang by Mary, mother of Jesus. And it's almost like she plagiarized a lot of it. Because look at this song found in Luke um, chapter 1, verse 47. It says, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble state of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call 
me blessed, you, Mary, blessed, you're nothing. <laughs> you're, you're, you're pregnant before you're, you're married. You, you don't, your heritage is not, does not weigh up. I mean, Mary, you're, you're nothing. But the whole nation will call me blessed as a result of what God has done. 52, she comes out in her song and says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hunger with good things and the rich. He has sent away empty. You see this take place in Mary's life. See the Roman Empire carry the most power in the world. But it, it was crushed by the love of Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's how the Roman Empire fell. It was crushed by the love. Of, in fact, they even say at 300 years at uh, 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 300 years after Christ, that was crushed by love, Christianity, and God's word. Ultimately, the Messiah. With a change of leadership, did not come from the powerful, but yet from the weak. If you look at uh, a prayer, I just want to read it. Kind of just gives us a basic understanding of who God uses. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high. The broken heart is a healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul. To have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is a place of vision. Lord, in the daytime stars can be seen from the deepest wells, in the deepest wells the brightest of stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, Thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. What does this mean? It means that God's willing to use us all <laughs> as long as we're empty. <laughs> it means that God is willing to, we all fit in the category. We all fit in the category. In our mind, as culture is pushing at us, is driving us towards what we should be. We all fit into this category as somebody that does not fit. Somebody who is empty, somebody who is hurting, somebody who is poor. If we're all fitting into the category, what can we do? The King of Kings, according to this passage, is there to fill us up. And with Hannah, when he fills Hannah up, the entire world changes. How does the world change? He gives it to Samuel. Samuel then gives it to David. David then goes to Jesus. It's all moving in a straight line. Under this concepts of leadership, of being poor rather than rich, of being humble rather than exalted. Again, all pointing to Christ. We know this because in 2.10 says this, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, according to that passage, shall be broken to pieces. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. The Lord is going to do it all, and he's going to do it by giving the strength to a king which is King David, humble, broken, contrite in spirit, and exalt the horn of his anointed, which would be Jesus Christ. The world changed as a result 
of what this kind of leader looked like. Culture sells one leader, one leader, rich, famous, exalted, educated, have prestige, have a good family, all those things. But the Bible sells a different one. Are you broken so I can work for you? That's what the Bible is selling to us. That's what the Bible is telling us. God wants to fill each one of us up. And the only question is, are you broken and ready to be filled up? God, we just thank you that you've done all the work. Work of salvation, God, has been complete and it's been completed at the cross. There is nothing we need to do except believe in it and then we will be saved. We're not strong enough to save us, God. Only you are strong enough to save us and you did it. I just pray, God, that uh, we'd be broken under the concept of sin that we do. We'd be broken before your throne room of grace and ask you, God, for forgiveness. Because, God, we want to be filled up by your glory. We want to be filled up by your majesty. We want to be filled up by your goodness. We want to be filled up by your grace. Please, God, grant us this. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.